0: This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
1: In uh, December of 1973, as a GBI agent, I worked and was assigned to Fleming, a double homicide, where Mr. and Mrs. R.O. Fleming in Rins, Georgia, were murdered. It appeared uh, initially that it was a, what can be described as a home invasion, a robbery, a murder in which uh, the victims were uh, bound and tortured, strangled with coat hangers. It appeared that uh, this torture that, that occurred uh, with coat hangers used as a garret where they were twisted and then released, twisted and released. The interesting thing about that case was they were bound, the uh, phone line was disabled, there were multiple offenders. It appeared robbery was the motive and, and that they were targeted and killed as a result of this, uh, of this crime by what we would deem experienced offenders. These were not teenagers.
0: Former GBI agent Bob Ingram is well-versed in all things Dixie Mafia. As a 25-year-old rookie, he was the lead agent assigned to the Fleming murder case in 1973 and would eventually play an important role in the closing of the Durham case, nearly 50 years later. He knows a lot about Billy Sunday Burt and his boys.
1: These were people that, that were well experienced in crime and, and left no witnesses and minimal evidence. As a result, uh, four people, Billy Wade Davis, Bobby G. Gaddis, Billy Sunday Burt, Charles David Reed were all indicted and Davis uh, chose to testify against the three uh, who were convicted and sentenced to death. He was granted immunity for his testimony in the Fleming murder case.
0: From Imperative Entertainment, this is season two of In the Red Clay. The murders of Reed Oliver Fleming and his wife Lois on December 22, 1973, provide a bit of background on the relationship between Billy Sunday Burt and Billy Wayne Davis, and what would be the beginning of their eventual downfall. After the two were arrested for bank robbery in 74, Davis turned on Burt for the Fleming murders to secure immunity, and in turn, Burt would implicate Davis in the murders of Drs. Warren and Rosina Matthews, two prominent pathologists murdered in their Marietta, Georgia home three years prior. Burt, who was handed a death sentence, would also go on to implicate Davis in the murder of a man named Charles Max Sibley over a gambling debt, which would result in Davis getting a death sentence as well, one that would later be commuted to life in prison. I tell you all this to illustrate a simple point and pose a question. Knowing how much these two men had it out for each other, can we really take Davis's confession as gospel? Is it possible that he's coming clean on the Durham murders purely in the hopes that he may spend what little time he has left outside of prison walls to simply live out the rest of his days in a more comfortable prison? Or is this just one last ditch effort to demonize his enemy, Billy Burt, to have the last laugh. In season one, we learned a lot about Billy Sunday Burt and his life story through the eyes of Stoney. But what about the other men in the Dixie Mafia? And what about Billy Wayne Davis's story?
2: Davis come from a fluid family. He was educated. He had connections with what I call big wheels, big wheels, uh, people with influence, intelligent, uh, educated, politicians, doctors, lawyers. That was Davis's circle. He was just the criminal element of it. And that's what attracted my dad to him when they met. He had all this information that he was getting from lawyers on the west side of Georgia, in particular, where my dad had none. And that was a whole new ball game. And they made millions together. From Davis's contact, robbing card games of these big wheels. Stuff that only an insider like Davis's family raised him to be. The friends he had, them to the very end. I mean, my God.
0: As Stoney tells me, the complicated relationship between these two men goes back some 50 plus years. Bert from northwest Georgia and Davis from the west side of Georgia were introduced in 1967 through a mutual friend, believing that they may benefit from one another's skills and criminal networks. Both men also seemed to not have a conscience when it came to getting the job done, whatever the job might have been. These guys were willing to go all the way to secure power and money, and they would kill at the blink of an eye to silence an eyewitness or informant.
2: Now, here these two tornadoes meet in 67, and boy, business is booming. Nothing never stopped with my father and George's Dixon Mafia, his boys as far as the bank robberies, the hits. It went on as if they'd never met. But what happened was, added to that, now he had a whole new arena that sometimes he'd take a couple of his boys and take with him. Sometimes it was just him and Davis.
0: Stoney says that his father never considered Davis a member of his group, and the other guys in the Dixie Mafia didn't even like Davis. They constantly tried to tell Bert that Davis wasn't to be trusted. But for Bert, Davis brought a whole new avenue for income his way. Davis used his connections and influence in higher levels of society that Bert couldn't reach. Politicians, lawyers, and the like— Davis had his finger on the pulse of those with money and power. Davis also fit in with that crowd seamlessly, as he was well-dressed, well-educated, and more refined than Bert, who, with his speech impediment and gruff exterior, stood out like a sore thumb.
2: His look, his credentials, he dressed up well as a lawman, Davis did. That being said, he's an opportunist, and everybody's human. Which is
0: to say, Don't let that intelligent, refined persona of Davis's fool you. Davis was, by all means, a gangster.
2: And to his credit, the man has not flipped on all the many, many people he could have in prison if that's what he was about. And my dad always knew this. That's why he defended him to his boys who didn't like Davis. He is the definition of a hardcore gangster. I believe that. He is not a punk who just rats to his credit he has stayed tight mouth on everything in his life every other crime or any other big name people and boy don't you know he has some big names that he could flip probably politicians that will raise your eyebrows but the man has stayed iron clad rock solid davis was complicit in this particular case because he had a little gold nugget at the end of a little rainbow
0: Stoney is talking about Davis cooperating in the Durham case, and that gold nugget at the end of the rainbow he describes is Davis being moved to a nicer prison. And Stoney is right in saying that Davis has kept much of the information he surely has to himself all these years. And though he did make that deal with ATF Special Agent Jim West and Sheriff Earl D. Lee in the Fleming murder case, it was actually a smart move on his part. He received immunity, took Billy Burt down and simultaneously cleared himself of 18 different murders of his own. The fact that the deal was ever even agreed to by law enforcement shows you how badly they wanted Burt off the streets for the rest of his life. And the only reason Davis ended up in prison himself for life is because Burt returned the favor, implicating him in five different murders, which poses another question. When Burt did finally flip on Davis, why weren't the Dura murders mentioned? If his intent was to have Davis locked away for life, would he not think of mentioning a recent triple homicide committed across state lines? Bert knew that Davis made a deal with law enforcement, so if he really wanted to be sure that no further deals could be made between Davis and Jim West, would he not bring a whole new state's law force into the picture? Law enforcement that Davis had no ties to. For Stoney... It all goes back to his belief that Billy Burt was never in Boone, North Carolina that night.
2: No mystery there. Think about it. Any of those cases, if my father had told one of his children something, was going to come from me. I'm the only one that lived and breathed him. Shane didn't go see him for a 12-year period. When he died, Shane had been to see him three times in 20 years. When he was there, my dad you can see my dad in his eyes. He was heartbroken, and he just poured love on him. You know, in my dad's mind, this is my fault. If I'd stayed out, this kid wouldn't be here all messed up. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about...
0: No matter how many times I hear Stoney defend his father, it still can be a bit shocking. While I understand what he's saying and where he's coming from, the reality is that he's defending the honor of a man who, by his own admission, has killed over 100 people.
2: Now, you can blame my father from now to doomsday about murders and bad things he's done, but you get repetitive. But you can't belittle him for being a provider, a good father as best he knew how, because I'm living proof of it. If you got normal intelligence, and I believe I do, you do not stay loyal and love a father like I do him, unless he has earned it and he deserves it. I don't idolize him. I don't want to be him. When I did want to be him when I was young, what I wanted to be was that flashy, good-looking guy with the fast cars which women dripped off of and men wanted to be like. That's far cry from wanting to be a murdering son of a bitch. It never entered my mind. I never grasped that part of it. That ain't something I want to be any more than it had entered my mind about some of his victims until that day you walked in. And let me hear Floyd Horde's son. That forced me to take a cold look at that side of it. I really opened my eyes to some insight on how the world must view him and people who don't love him. Well, hell, when you think about people that don't love him, (laughs) there's a short list of people that do, in my mind.
0: Just thinking of a stone-cold killer like Billy Sunday Burt loving people is probably a hard concept for some to fathom. Think about it. How does one shoot a person in the back of the head and then go home and shower love on his
2: family, his young children? He loved a lot of people. My mother, all his kids. He never allowed a one time for one to speak against the other. He stayed on me all the time about going to see my mother. I would never give him a I wouldn't want to hurt him. I wouldn't hurt him for nothing. But he stayed true to that to the day he died. You do not turn your back on your mother, or your kids, or your brother. You got to give him that credit. While they seek to destroy his, I can't say reputation, he ain't got no reputation. They seek to the destroy the truth of how good he provided for us, and how good he was, given his limits, of uh, of being. Leave it to be there. He done pretty damn good, Sean. He's made sure we were educated. He made damn sure that we brushed our teeth. That we said yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. That we damn done our homework. That we didn't get a failing grade. All the things that a kid looks back on later, he done. It was him. It was nobody but him. Son, if you get a federal grade, you won't. Be. can't run with me no more until the grade is up. Well, that was my son to never get a federal grade. I didn't get my first F till year after he was locked up.
0: Hearing Stoney speak so highly of his father is nothing new. I think, Many of us understand why he feels the way he does, even if you don't agree with him. But the fact is, the complicated man that was Billy Sunday Burt left such an impression on young Stoney that 50 years later, he still idolizes him. At least, certain traits of his. But that cannot be said about all of the members of the Dixie Mafia. Not all of the families of those men have chosen to see the good in their blood relatives who've committed such atrocious crimes. Really, it's been extremely difficult to even find anyone willing to discuss these men the way that Stoney talks about his father's life. I know very little about the other men implicated in the Durham case. Billy Wayne Davis, Bobby Jean Gaddis, and Charles David Reed, or Charlie.
2: Charlie was a damn ladies' man, he was small in stature, good looking. I liked the hell out of him. He had a cold side to him. i seen later in years, but as a child, he was real good to me. You know, he was one of the boys. And he served my father not like a punk, but like a true soldier, like a true comrade, like a true friend. My dad didn't have a hierarchy of soldiers. They were friends. Mutual respect. He was just the, the better man in always of them, and all of them looked up to him, but he never belittled none of them. They all had their talents. Charlie's talent was he was cold as ice. He was capable of anything, and he kept his mouth shut to the end, just like my daddy.
0: Burt first met Charlie Reed at his pool hall in Winder, his base of operations. The two clicked, and Bert felt he could be a trusted man and was soon after initiated into the fledgling group. Stoney provides a little background on Reed and Gaddis and shares some of his memories of them from their time in the Dixie Mafia.
2: 1971, I'm 11 years old. Charlie had went with an underage girl, you know, statutory rape type of thing. Said so to hide out for a while. While he was hiding out, <laughs> they robbed the Decula Bank. Now, before they robbed that bank, Red dial was not known. This little bank didn't have a police station.
0: When leaving the scene of this particular bank robbery, someone shot at Bert and his boys as they made their escape.
2: My dad always thought a police could run out and shot at him, cut to find out later it was a post the postman that was the postmaster. My dad had heard that he cracked up, he done gone. But Charlie As they left out, he opened the bag to look in it. Boom! Red dye made him look like Collider the Wooden Indian. Sean, nothing could get that off. They scrubbed him with everything with So now, statutory and red dye, Charlie Reed. What'd he do? He went to Miami.
0: When Charlie opened the money bag after robbing the Takula Bank, the red dye exploded all over his face, neck, and hands. That and a looming statutory rape charge prompted Charlie Reed to hide out in Florida for a while, until things blew over.
2: they dad give the money, went to Miami to hang it until that die was gone. Had to stay low for a few weeks cause my father could take care of getting it going away up here.
0: Charlie Reed was more of Billy Bird's helper, not a killer
2: himself. Now, you asked me what kind of fellow Charlie was. He's a damn good gangster. He took good orders from my dad. He wasn't a genius, but he was smart enough to figure stuff out. He was a self-starter, but he did not. He has never killed anyone. He just watched my father do it and was helped him do it. He was in the car when my dad had the gun on Sheriff Lee. And he says, you going to shoot him, Billy? And my dad says, hell no, let's go. So that was Charlie.
0: When Stoney refers to his father having a gun on Sheriff Lee, he's referring to Bert being hired by Davis to kill the man. Bert parked his car in the parking lot of Lee's church and had his shotgun trained on him as he walked out the front doors with his wife and children, but decided not to pull the trigger at the last moment. Charlie would later go to prison when the Dixie Mafia was broken up. He would escape from prison just five years from his parole, only to be recaptured two months later. When he finally did get out, 16 years after he was first arrested, Charlie found that the world had changed without him.
2: Sean, when you go to prison, time stops. Will you stay one year or 30? If you go in 1974 and you get out in 1984, it's still 1974. Charlie made the mistake of coming home thinking it was still back in the day.
0: Charlie tried to pick up where the Dixie Mafia left off and began reaching out to his old friends and girlfriends one of which had already moved on and gotten married to another former member of Burt's group. After an unheeded warning to cut his losses and move on from the woman, Charlie Reed was shot in the head and killed with a 30 30 deer rifle from long range. The official cause of death was accidental shooting, citing the man who pulled the trigger was setting in the sights on a new scope for the gun and accidentally shot Reed, taking off most of his head. While it seems that Charlie was the type to egg Bert on and just help out where needed, what about the other alleged accomplice in the Durham murders, Bobby Jean Gaddis?
2: All of them come from rough past. All of them was raised with a code. And the ones that didn't have no code was obedient, like Don and Big Dummy Gaddis. Other words, while they was under my dad's control, they had to act like human beings. Left to their own devices, they were pieces of shit. A couple of them, but nobody more than Bobby Gaddis.
0: Remember, Gaddis was also convicted in the deaths of the Flemings and the Matthews, the murders that Bird and Davis used to flip on each other.
2: Bobby Gene Gaddis, he was a dog animal when it comes to pedophile type stuff with women and kids. He was a sexual predator. He was sadistic. I've heard him tell his wife. I want you to go and make me some damn biscuits right now. Bobby Jean, I don't have any lard. I don't give a damn you got ten minutes to do it or I'm gonna be And sure enough, ten minutes he be the hell out of her. That was Bobby Jean. Big fat son of a bitch. When he went to handcuff him, he couldn't handcuff him cause his hands would reach together, you know. He's five foot, eight inches tall, weighs three hundred and fifty pounds. It wasn't enough for him to do butt drive with a week, you know.
0: Stoney doesn't hold back on his feelings for Gaddis. He says that Gaddis was abusive to his wife and children, who wanted nothing to do with him later in life, and to animals as well. Which makes you wonder why Bert even kept him around, as this seems to go against what we've been told about Billy's affection toward animals and children. But apparently, Gaddis, like all members of the Dixie Mafia, had to pass Bert's test before they could be admitted into the group.
2: All eight guys in my dad's group, I had to pass two tests, money and women. I don't know how many failed that test. When he would do it and they passed it, he'd swear them under oath to death they'd never repeat it. So none of them never knew about it, the other one. Like, Don was the last one. Here's what he done to Don.
0: Don Cooper was the last man to be admitted into Bert's group.
2: Here, Don, hold this $5,000 from his $5, for my son. Uh, I'm gonna be in a spot tomorrow. And I don't want somebody to know I carry this much money. I'll be back and I'll get it from tomorrow. Will you do that. Sure, Bill.
0: In the bag of cash he would ask Don or whoever to hold for him would actually be several hundred dollars more than what he told them there was. And then
2: he would go to one of his mistresses, a pretty one, and say, Baby, I'm gonna be gone for a day. I want you to get done by itself and just come on to him. I ain't turn it on. And let me know what happens when I get back. okay, Billy. When he come back, he said, Don, let me get that money. If it was $5,000, he failed that damn test. He realized that he miscounted it and he took it for a hundred. Failure. When he went to the woman, what happened, baby? When I believe he had a damn good time, but now you told me, remember? Well, he failed that damn test too. Now they done it out of fear, not more. They didn't know one of them have that kind of integrity. He didn't know he was that feared, but that's the effect he had on people.
0: But Gaddis whether out of fear or something more, passed Bert's test.
2: He passed the test when the time come. I don't know how he done it, but he did.
0: But that still doesn't change Stoney's views of him.
2: He was the worst person I've ever known. Not intelligent, sadistic. So I'm just going to say he needed killing.
0: With Billy Sunday Burt, Bobby Jean Gaddis, and Charlie Reed all dead, Billy Wayne Davis is all that's left of the original Dixie Mafia. Even though Burt and the others did not consider him an actual member of the group, to most, it's one and the same.
2: The Davis was way more caliber. He was the same caliber as my dad, as far as smartness, cold bloodedness. He was more connected. That's what attracted my father to him. He was so connected. So what Davis had my father didn't was money from the get-go and influential family. And what they seen in each other, he recognized him, my father, as somebody that could do things he couldn't. But Davis wasn't part of the group. Because Davis was an
0: outsider and didn't associate with the other guys regularly, Stoney had limited interactions with him. So while he can provide some information on Davis, I needed more. For the first time since starting my work on In the Red Clay, I had the opportunity to speak with a blood relative of Billy Wayne Davis. Unfortunately, this person would not agree to a taped interview, as Davis' family has struggled for many years to come to grips with his actions. I was provided with some background and insight into the man, but unlike Stoney and his father, there was no one trying to see the positive side of Davis, if there is such a thing. Davis came from a well-to-do family. They weren't rich, per se, but they were more than comfortable. They owned large parcels of land in Cobb County, on the west side of Georgia, and the family was socially connected and had some pull in the community. There's even a school in Cobb County, Milton Davis Elementary, named after his grandfather. Davis was well-educated and extremely intelligent, and I'm told that had he chosen another path in life— he could have easily become a successful lawyer, politician, doctor, or whatever else he desired. Instead, he enlisted in the army, and then, after a series of odd jobs, got into the car sales business and, with the help of his brother-in-law, opened a high-end used car lot in Austell, Georgia. For a time, he lived in a small house behind the car lot, and in 1972, just five years after meeting Billy Burt built a new house in a nicer part of the county. I've seen pictures of the house and it's actually very stylish for the 1970s. There was dark wood paneling and orange shag carpet. A large white velour sectional sofa sat in the living room across from the large stone fireplace. Out back was the swimming pool and in the basement, the poker table where card games and gambling were frequent. But while the family photos that were shared with me seem to show Davis as being well-liked, that's not really the case. His brother-in-law was terrified of him and believed until the day he died that Davis had bodies buried on his property, at home, and the car lot. Most of Davis's family all but completely disassociated with him after his arrest in 1974. They had no idea the things he was truly mixed up in. They just thought he was a slimy used car salesman with shady friends who gambled into the night. After his arrest, he did acquire money for legal defense from his mother, using profits from the sale of much of the family's remaining property. Davis's mother, I'm told, believed he was innocent of all charges against him until the day she died, while the rest of the family has remained embarrassed and disgusted by his actions. His wife, Mary, eventually took her own life with a cocktail of alcohol and pills, and his two children have no contact with him, even today. The sad reality is that Billy Wayne Davis's life choices negatively affected the lives of so many others. To hear that his family still struggles to cope with his actions and understand where it all went wrong with a man that started out with a relatively privileged life is disheartening. It's not as gratifying as one might think to hear them say things like, pathological liar, manipulator, monster. It almost makes the unbreakable bond between Stoney and his father that much more unique and special because Davis has no one he is truly living an empty black void of a life he will likely sit alone in that prison cell until he takes his very last breath and even then who will be there to cry for him With everything I've learned about the Durham case, there are still so many unanswered questions, questions we may never truly have the answers to. Were Davis and Bert in North Carolina that night? Did the Durham's son-in-law, Troy Hall, hire them? Was their daughter Ginny involved somehow, or simply an innocent victim caught in the stranglehold of a deviant husband? And did Davis make a deal with law enforcement? Coming up on the season finale of In the Red Clay.
1: Every single part of it is not only unacceptable and unbelievable, but it's preposterous. It's bullshit, to use a technical term. There's no way in God's green earth that Billy Burrett and that group would know about a Durham family in Boone, North Carolina. No way. Who would believe that?
2: You can close a case, and that doesn't mean that you solved it all. I can see why the sheriff said the case is closed. That doesn't mean it's solved totally because until you had a definitive answer, you didn't solve anything.
0: In the Red Clay is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was created, written, and reported by me, Sean Kupe, and I wrote and recorded the original music score. Executive producers are Jason Hoke and Gino Falsetto. Story editor is Jason Hoke. Sound design by Shane Freeman. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. Season two of In the Red Clay, Durham, is a six episode series with new episodes available every Monday. To keep up with this and my other podcasts, follow me on social media at Sean Kupe. Have questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. If you like the series, tell your friends and leave us a review. Thanks for listening.